Right. Hey, good morning, Three Circle Church. Great to be with you guys today. All of our campuses join us right now. We have Midtown Mobile. We have our Daphne campus. We have Thomasville and all of those online. Uh, it's going to be a great day as we jump into a new series. I love when we start a new series like Christmas morning for me, man. You know, it's just always awesome, always so fun. And we're going to jump into a study of what we're going to call the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. We're going to dive into that. And how many of you have ever seen uh, The Wizard of Oz? Anybody in the room? You ever seen it? Like almost all of us, right? When I was a kid, The Wizard of Oz came on once a year. Do you all remember when once a year The Wizard of Oz would be played and people would enjoy The Wizard of Oz? That witch scared me to death, you know? But if you remember, Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, who else? The Lion and then little Toto, they went on this adventure and they're wanting to see, they keep hearing about this great Wizard of Oz, right? And so they end up at the Emerald City and they get to finally get an audience with the great wizard. And if you remember, he kind of shows himself to them and this is the image of the wizard. You remember, they were terrified, right? They were so scared. But while they were standing there, little Toto ran around the corner. Do y'all remember this? And he grabs the curtain and he pulls it back. And to their surprise, the great wizard of Oz was nothing but a little old guy. He wasn't impressive at all. It was a huge letdown. Do you remember how they were so like let down by this? The great wizard, when you pulled back the curtain, wasn't much to him at all. Now what what you're going to see is the high priestly prayer of Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit. This is us getting a glimpse of God in a way that you don't get it in any other part of scripture. But here's what you're going to find. When you pull back the curtain on our great God, he's not smaller. He's greater than you even thought he was. He's greater than you ever imagined he is. More majestic than you could have ever thought. So that's what this is as we dive into this. Now, when we put out that we were going to, we were going to do this series on the greatest prayer that's ever been recorded, almost universally, everyone thought we were going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer. But we are not talking about the Lord's Prayer. In fact, I would argue today that the prayer we're about to study, the high priestly prayer, is actually what we should be calling the Lord's Prayer. The high priestly prayer is the real Lord's Prayer. Let me explain to you what I mean. So we all call this other prayer that that Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus would have never prayed that prayer. Jesus has never prayed that prayer. He never will pray that prayer, the one that we call the Lord's Prayer. Why would Jesus never pray what we call the Lord's Prayer? Because Jesus would never ask his Father to forgive him of his sins and trespasses. Jesus isn't a sinner. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he would never ask the Father to forgive him of his sins or to keep him away from temptation or to keep him away from evil. He didn't have to do those things. So what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer... That prayer we should call our prayer because it's the one Jesus gave us to pray. It was Jesus teaching finite humans how to talk to their infinite God. And he gave us a roadmap to do that, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. I'm not in any way diminishing it, but Jesus did not pray that prayer and wouldn't have prayed that prayer. And conversely, you and I cannot pray the high priestly prayer. The prayer you and I are about to study, humans can't pray it. So Jesus would never pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, and we could never pray the high priestly prayer because we're not God, but Jesus is. And so what I want you to understand is this prayer is so powerful. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this prayer is like a thunderbolt from heaven. 
The Puritans considered John 17, this prayer, the greatest place in all of the scriptures. So I kind of want to build it up for you what we're about to dive into. Because you and I live in a world that has a very low view of Jesus, often even inside the church. We see Jesus as, you know, kind of like a 70s hippie guy, you know what I mean? Or there's these other views of Jesus where he's our best friend, like the prosperity gospel Jesus is basically there to give us what we want and make us comfortable. <clears throat> that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus that's going to be revealed in this high priestly prayer. So this prayer allows us to eavesdrop on Jesus. How many of you would love to just kind of listen in? That's what we get to do here. So you need to understand that, that Jesus allowed his disciples to listen to this and intentionally allowed John to write it down, but he's not talking to his disciples and he's not talking to us in the future. It is us listening to the eternal son talk to the eternal father. It is the holiest of holy conversations. It's awesome. And that's why we're going to study it. And we're going to look at the first five verses of the prayer today. Let's dive in and let's see what it says. Now, before we dive in, I need to give you context because look, John 17, one through five, the first statement is after saying these things. That tells us when this happened. When did the high priestly prayer take place? So the disciples were all in the upper room with Jesus and they had that last supper, right? And Jesus washed their feet and Jesus also dismisses Judas. So this is a high drama time for them. Judas is gone, 12 has now become 11. They had all that stuff happen at the Last Supper. Jesus tells them he's going to die, he's going to suffer. And then they leave the supper and they are walking to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray again later. And they're on their way and while they're walking, so I want you to get in your mind because they didn't all jump into an Uber, okay, to get there. There was, it was dark. They're walking a trail to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe one of them has a torch. It's 11 guys. They all just had a big meal. They all just had a big dramatic moment with Jesus, and they're walking with him. They know they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark, and he keeps stopping and teaching them. He's still teaching them. He teaches them the vine and the branches teaching that's so famous. He's teaching, teaching, teaching. It's like he's unloading because he knows it's about to be over. And then there comes this moment where he stops and he prays. And see, the disciples had never heard him pray. They just knew he did. Well, they had heard him pray like when he would say to the father before he raised Lazarus from the dead or before he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Or, yeah, they would get snippets, but they had never been allowed to listen to him talk to his father. And Jesus allows them to listen and even write it down. And we, aren't you glad he did? And we have it here. So he says, after those things, after all that's happened. Now, let's also ask this question. What is about to happen? We just answered the question, what has just happened? Where is he headed? He's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to sweat drops of blood. He will be arrested. He will be beaten up for eight solid hours all night long. And then he's going to go to the Romans after that. And they're going to scourge him and torture him. And then they're going to nail him to a cross. And he's going to die a heinous death. And he, all of that's about to happen. That is coming. This has just happened. This is coming. And after saying these things, verse 1, chapter 17, Jesus looked up to heaven. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't bow he doesn't have to. He looks at his father. This is the eternal son, infinite, talking to the eternal father, infinite. And he says, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. That's not the whole prayer. We're going to keep walking through the prayer, but that's enough for us to grab onto today. Let's dive in. Again, if you look across theological history, all the great theologians consider this to be the Mount Everest of the Bible, this section. And hopefully you now recognize, oh my goodness, I never thought about the high priestly prayer that way. I never thought about what's happening here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great theologian, said this. He said, if we had nothing but John 17, if you didn't have the rest of the Bible and all you had is what we're reading during this study, he said, we would have more than enough to sustain us because our Lord has given us an insight behind the curtain, if you will, into our whole position and into everything that is of importance and value to us while we are, watch this statement, in this world of time. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment because you're going to get so much theology and doctrine and understanding about our position and what God has done for us in this prayer. But I also want you to understand that you and I are creatures of time, aren't we now? Like, if I go long, you're going to let me know. Come on, Pastor. Got to get on out of here now. Line's getting long at the places we're going to eat for lunch. And our attention spans just can't handle it. Lord knows mine can't. So we're people of time. God, and, and again, I'm going to hurt your brain for a minute, and this is, this is a prayer that will hurt your brain because it's infinite speaking to infinite while finite listens. And infinite, you can't understand, and I can't either because I'm finite in every way. All I understand, in my mind, everything has to have a beginning and an end, but God doesn't. God doesn't have a beginning and an end. He's Alpha and Omega. There is no time to God. He created time for us. He's outside of it. His realm is outside of time. And you're going to hear Jesus drop little stuff in there because when Jesus talks to us or when he talks to his disciples, he talks in time. He spoke to us in ways we could understand. But he's just letting us listen in to him talking to his father and you will see that Jesus speaks in a timeless way. For instance, he says there, I came into this world and I have completed the work you have told me to complete. But has he? The cross hadn't happened yet. The cross is about to happen. The redemption's about to happen. The resurrection's gonna happen. But Jesus is speaking as if it has already happened. Why? Because this is infinite, talking to infinite, and he can see it all. It's all in front of him and behind him and above him and below him. And around, oh, oh, there goes my brain again. See, finite brushes up against infinite, and we just about can't handle it. And just so you know, that's, that's worship, by the way. When you realize that God is so far beyond us, so much greater, so much bigger than us. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is God giving us a glimpse into eternity from our side of the viewpoint. Here in our world of time. And Jesus stepped into this world of time, by the way. In this prayer, Jesus is looking up to heaven, forward to the cross, and across history at the church. In fact, it's so glorious. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to show you guys that Jesus prayed for you in particular. He prayed for you and for me in this prayer. Can you believe that Jesus, right before he died, was thinking about us? 
He was. He was thinking about you and prayed for you. I got five people excited about that. I'll get the rest of you. That's my job. He was looking up. Now, why do we call it the high priestly prayer? Why is it called the high priestly prayer? Well, because Jesus in this prayer, you will see, is functioning as our priest, our high priest. And that is something Jesus was. In fact, let me give you a little, like a little explanation of, of who Jesus is. So if you look in the Old Testament, you'll find three big offices, official offices underneath God's kind of rule and authority that no one ever altogether filled one person. No, no one person ever filled them. And it is prophet, priest, and king. Now write it down. Jesus, however, was simultaneously the prophet, the priest, and the king. No one ever done that. If you look into the Old Testament, you'll see like, remember there was King David. Y'all remember King David? Well, was King David, he was the king, but was he also the prophet? No. There was a prophet named Nathan who came in and told David the truth. So the prophets speak the truth and the king rules and reigns. But then you also had high priests. And who was a priest during that time? Remember King Saul got in trouble because he made a sacrifice that only Samuel the priest was able to do. Remember that? So you had priests, prophets, and kings, and they all had their job to do. But when Jesus came, he wraps it all into one person, and he is our king, and he is our prophet, and he is our high priest. Now, what did high priests do for the people? And I need you to know, you need a high priest. You need someone to represent you. Have you ever heard of a court case, or have you ever been watching a movie that had a courtroom in it or whatever, and you heard that the defendant decided to represent themselves? Have you ever heard that? They're not getting outside counsel. They're going to represent themselves. Every time I hear that, I think, oh, that is not a good idea. It never goes well. Why? Because that defendant simply is not qualified to represent themselves in any way. Before the law, they're not capable or qualified to represent themselves. But they can legally, and it never goes well. They need someone to represent them. And let me tell you, that is in no way, it, it can't even compare to our bad position if we try to represent ourselves before the holy law of God and before the judge God. But, but do you want to know how you choose to defend yourself before God? Just go it without Jesus. Every person who does not receive Jesus will stand before a holy God before his holy law and you will defend yourself and you are not qualified. But for all of us in this room, we're about to have some church up in here. Come on now. Growing up, that's all you'd have to do is kind of throw that out there and people get a little excited. Mm -hmm. Every person in this room who believed upon Jesus, you do not defend yourself anymore. You have a high priest who stands between you and the Holy Father and the Word. Yeah. And the Bible says that there is a prosecutor. You have an accuser. His name is Satan. And the Bible says he accuses. And yet all of us in Jesus, we have with two nail-scarred hands, right? One on us, humanity. One on divinity, the God-man. When Satan accuses, he says, you know what? I got them. They're with me. You, you stop because they're with me. I'm the final word. I represent them before the Father. They're with me. Hey, good news. It's gospel. So... Jesus, in this prayer, you get to hear Jesus operating like our high priest. He's going to pray for us. He's going to pray for God to protect us. He is looking out for us. It's really good news. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. Hebrews 9.11 
says of Jesus, the high priest, it says, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has, watched this, he didn't just enter the temple on earth because the temple built on earth was a representation of the greater temple. Everything on earth is just a representation. He didn't just enter the earthly temple that we've all heard about. He, the Bible says, went into the perfect tabernacle in heaven, the real holy of holies, which was not made by human hands. It's not a part of this created world. And watch this. This is why he's the final high priest and he's greater than all other high priests. With his own blood, not the blood of an animal, with his blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place where the living God was. And watch this. Once for all time, and he secured our redemption forever. That's, that's what we're talking about here. So when Jesus says to him, looks to his father, acts like our high priest, this is what he's talking about. This is what is going on. See, let's talk about high priest and why this is the high priestly prayer. So what did the high priest do for the people? Well, once every year, the high priest would go into the earthly temple. Not the heavenly one, obviously. He couldn't do that. He'd go into the earthly temple, and he would have to walk into the Holy of Holies. And this was dangerous stuff. And only one man would do this, and he would walk in, and he would have to take the life of an animal, and he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies, and he would use that blood, and he would pray for the people and represent the people, but then he would have to leave. He could not stay in the Holy of Holies, and he would very carefully get out of there, right? But the thing is, is he would have to do it again and again and again. He, he never did it once and for all. And that priest would die like all of them did, and a new one would come. And every year they kept having to do this. Why did they have to keep, it, keep doing it? Two reasons. The priest was just a human. He couldn't represent the people totally. He couldn't pay for their sins. And the animals were just animals. Both still under the curse. But they, they couldn't do this. It was all a preview to a movie that was really going to happen. It was all... Hope deferred, if you will. Something that was coming in the future. But Jesus comes, and he is our high priest. And he, watch this. Not only does Jesus walk into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood, he doesn't take an animal's life. He is the lamb. He's the priest that uses his own blood. And then, guess what? All other priests had to leave the presence of God carefully and then come back. The Bible says Jesus, once he entered the presence of God and finalized this thing for us, he walks over to the right hand of the Father and sits down because that is his rightful place. He doesn't have to leave the Holy of Holies. He's the high priest who stays in the presence of God. And see, we have such a low view of Jesus. We just think, Jesus, man, Jesus loves everybody, man. Jesus is probably surfing down in San Diego somewhere, man. That's our idea of Jesus. Or we've got the, you know, Jesus just wants somebody happy and healthy. And if, if, if I pray right, Jesus will give me money and health. And, and it's all these versions of Jesus. You know what I want? I want the Bible version of Jesus. I want, I want the Jesus who is the real Jesus. You want to know who the real Jesus is? He's the Jesus who is our high priest, who defends us who paid for our redemption with his own blood. And listen to his first line. It's chilling. He says, Father, the hour has come. He looks to his Father. The hour has come. What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus was in complete control. That the Father, that God, our triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, the Godhead, they were not losing control. Judas betraying him. 
the stuff that's about to happen, Jesus nailed to a cross, the death, all of the horrible things that are about to happen, Jesus was in control of it. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. It wasn't an accident. That's why Galatians says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son into this world, into this world of time, born under the law, just like you and I, so that he could represent us before the law to redeem us. He was in control. The plan had always been in place. When he says the hour has come, he means a few things. Number one, the culmination of all biblical prophecy, all biblical types, and all biblical promises. When Jesus said the hour has come, he's saying everything that's happened up at this point has been leading to this moment, what I'm about to do. Prophecy, the whole Old Testament was talking about what Jesus would come and do. Types, when I say types, I want you to think of that as a preview to a movie. I haven't seen the new Bond movie yet, but I've seen a whole bunch of previews. And the previews make me want to see the movie, but I haven't seen the movie yet. And, and every, all of those, old, this is why Jesus said all of the Old Testament believers didn't understand totally what all the New Testament believers have actually experienced because all they were seeing were previews. We got the movie. Aren't you glad? We got the movie. And Jesus is saying all the promises, all the types, all of it, he's about to fulfill. Secondly, he says the hour has come. He means the final sacrifice for our sin. There will never need to be another one. You know, I love a lot of things about Three Circle Church. Coffee's good. Um, I love the people. Love you guys. The music's awesome here, right? Children's ministry, student ministry. So much good at the Hope Center. I could just go on and on about everything I love about our church. If I wasn't the pastor, I'd still be coming to this church. And I'd be giving whoever the pastor was a really hard time. You know what I mean? <laughs> Looking at him out there while he's preaching. Come on, pal. But something I really love about it is we don't have to take the life of an animal every Sunday when we come in here, do we now? Think about it. Do we? There's not someone out there making an animal sacrifice for us every Sunday. We have to do all that. Why? Jesus. Because Jesus said the hour has come. What's he, what's he mean? He means I'm about to do what these priests have been doing all these years. And I'm going to do it one more time. And when they take my life tomorrow, when they nail me to the cross, when those whips hit my body, when my blood is shed over these next few hours, when my heart stops beating and my lungs stop breathing, that is it. That's why on the cross, his last words are what? I'm done. We're never coming back here again. We're never doing it again. And that's why we just come to church and we celebrate now. There's no, it's already been done. We celebrate what was already done. And we sing about it and we talk about it and we invite others. And we live for him because he is our once and for all high priest. And he's the sacrifice for our sin. Never to be done again. And I am grateful for that. He's also, when he says the hour has come, speaking of the ultimate defeat of the enemy. The hour has now come. What we've been talking about has now come. You know, Jesus will say that the plan of God for our salvation was before the foundations of the world, before anything was even created. But the first time they went public with it, but the first time our triune God spoke of it publicly was in the Garden of Eden after the fall. And there's Adam and there's Eve and there's Satan, this fallen angel. Fallen humans, fallen angel. They're all in front of him. And God, our triune God, tells Adam, here's how it's going to go for you now, dude. Get a disc, get a plow, get to work. Going to be hard. You're not coming back in this garden anymore. 
He looks at the lady. It's going to be tough. It's going to be really hard. And then he looks at Satan. And he says, for you. And he says something that probably Adam and Eve didn't understand. But Jesus is talking about it here when he says the hours come. He says, you, there's one coming for you. There's one coming, and you don't understand how this is all going to happen. But you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush you. He's going to destroy you. You think you've won this, but we, we're, it, it's coming. And, and, and he's going to utterly destroy you and put you under him. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus says, the hour has come for ultimate defeat of the enemy. You see, when Satan didn't see it coming, he didn't understand it. It looked like defeat. Jesus dying on the cross, that looks like defeat. But three days later, the one who walked on water and overcame physics is about to up one, and he's going to overcome death and walk out of the grave. And so we, don't, we have nothing to fear now. We, the bite of the enemy's gone. We have declawed the tiger of hell. Jesus, our great high priest, how could we ever have a low view of Jesus? How could we ever just see him as a philosopher or just a, someone to make us comfortable? How could we not love this Jesus? And finally, he's the realization of our hope. When he says the hour has come, it's the realization of hope. Everything that had been hoped for is now realized. And there's, there's a difference between hope and hope realized. I was a, I've been a Saints fan my whole life. I grew up watching the Saints play every Sunday afternoon. And for the 80s and 90s, when I was watching it with my grandparents and all of us to get together over at their house, I promise you the pound cake my grandmother made every Sunday was way better than the football we watched. And it didn't matter who we brought in. We had Bobby Bear as a quarterback. We had Dalton Hilliard, great running back. Every now and then a good receiver would roll into town. It didn't matter. We were terrible. The Saints. The Aints. Wearing those grocery bags and all that. But I hoped. And then... Then in the mid-2000s, a guy my size, but a little better at football, a, and a torn-up shoulder, shows up in New Orleans. His name was Drew Brees. Yeah, he is right. <laughs> and Drew Brees takes us to the Super Bowl, and we win the Super Bowl. And I remember that night, I was just going crazy. My wife kindly bought me like an entire Cajun meal that night. And, and our kids were real little, and she got them out of the way so I could just enjoy the game. I had red beans and rice. I had gumbo. I had some spicy fried chicken for Popeyes. It was awesome. Love that chicken for Popeyes. It was great. It was awesome. And when we won that Super Bowl, all that I'd hoped for for the Saints, it's like it all came true. It was amazing. And it's never going to happen again. <laughs> but that night it was great. Because hope is one thing, but when you realize the hope, it is something else. And our hope was realized in Christ. He says the hour has come for people not just to hope, but to see it, to feel it. He also asked God to glorify him. He speaks of the glory of God. He says, glorify me as I glorify you. This is the triune relationship. Again, we're not going to fully understand it, but we, there's a reason Jesus wanted us to hear this. He wanted us to feel what infinity feels like and hear what infinity sounds like. He wanted that for us. What's glory? Rick Warren tries to define it. Again, this is going to be like me trying to define and describe to you the Grand Tetons if you've never been there. I got to go there, and I, I'm telling you, no matter how I describe it, you have, to, you have to experience it. 
You have to, I can show you pictures. It won't, it won't do it. you got to go feel it and experience it. But here's a good description. Rick Warren says the glory of God is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, and the atmosphere of his presence. Got it. That was easy. Thank you for clearing that up, Rick Warren. How many of you, your brain's hurting just a little bit, yeah? So we try to condense that a little more. God's glory is the essence of his nature and the weight of his importance. The essence of his nature means as he reveals himself to us and we get to know his attributes, we realize his infinity, his transcendence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at one time, no limits, good, grace, mercy, love, genuineness. He is who he says he is. He doesn't lie, so he's truthful. He's faithful. He proves to be true. We could go on and on and on. That's his glory. And see, I'm just kind of scratching the surface there. That's his glory. The weight of that is his glory. And Jesus says, demonstrate your glory through me as I demonstrate your glory to the world. God's glory is the only thing that cannot be overstated. Look, man, I've never caught a fish that didn't keep growing every time I told the story about it. You know what I'm saying? Man, my driver's license says I'm six foot tall, but I'm really 5'11 and a half. And you are the same way. But I was like, you know what? I came this close to this threshold, and I will cross it even if it's imaginary on this driver's license. So when they said, how tall are you? Six foot. But I'm 5'11 and a half. Unless I wear my boots. Just get some high boots. So, we exaggerate. But you can't, listen, finite creatures, you just can't exaggerate God. You cannot come up with enough words to overstate his glory. We haven't written enough worship songs. The reason the Bible says keep writing new songs is because we had not gotten there yet. We need to keep describing his glory. We need to keep describing his goodness. And then Jesus speaks of eternal life here, the doctrine of eternal life. He says he gives eternal life to each one, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, not religion, but to know God, relationship, through Jesus Christ. That's why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No one. Folks, listen, it is exclusive, and it is one of the uncomfortable things about Christianity. It is exclusive with the biggest invite in human history. All who would believe, all is invited. He knocks at the door, but let's make clear, no one's going to heaven unless they go through Jesus. No one. That includes anyone in this room. You can love this church and love the things of God, but if you don't go through Jesus, there's no heaven, there's no eternal life. And then today, because I wanted to leave, I wanted the, the, the first day of this, to give you a high view. How many of you are already a higher view of Jesus? You're just walking out just with, with the glory of God on your mind. That's what I want. So there's a chilling statement at the end that I just can't get over. So we're going to hit it here at the end in verse 5. He says, Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Let me just rewind that. Let's do that again. Before the world began, you and I shared this. That is us listening to a conversation we can hardly wrap our minds around. 
But what Jesus is speaking of here, in his human flesh that is in time and space, he's also the eternal son, and he's speaking of his eternality, one of his attributes. And that's, this is why you and I can't pray that way. We can't go to God and go, Lord, can we just share that thing we shared before the world began? <laughs> huh? No, we're humans. But Jesus could speak to his father like that. Like, he's, like if you were around my family, you would hear us tell stories that you just don't know about because you weren't there. You'd have to hear stories about when I was a kid and that thing that happened. We'd have all those inside stories. Well, here we hear the father talking to the son and the son talking to the father about stuff that we don't know about. But it's awesome. The eternality of Jesus means he became a man 2,000 years ago, but he has eternally been the son of God. Don't get this wrong. Jesus was not created at Christmas. Jesus became a man at Christmas. He had always been. And Jesus made the Pharisees mad one time in the temple to give you his eternal nature, this high priest of yours, so you'll have a high view of him. When he was on the earth in human flesh, he's in the temple, and they were really mad at him because he had made some statements that sounded very dangerous, almost blasphemous. So they were coming at him for clarification, thinking he would back down. They said to him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. Hey, he knew how to make friends, didn't he? <laughs> but I do know him, and I keep his word. Watch this. He's, he's leading them somewhere that's almost hard to imagine. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. That, that is a, he just dropped that mic. And they wanted to kill him for saying that. Why? Because what Jesus just looked at them and said is he said, you're looking at him. You're looking at the living God. I am God. I am God. I'm fiery furnace guy walking around. I'm burning bush. I'm the one walking with him in the garden. I am him. You're looking at him. I am. I am. And we, listen, we don't have to look for another church. He is our high priest. Defending us. You're going to see next week praying for us, loving us. Let's live to glorify our great high priest. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for what we're learning and what we'll continue to learn over the next few weeks. And I just pray as we leave in a worshipful sense of your glory that you would be magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.